God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. Would you join me in the reading of God's word? Those of you who can and are able to, would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? This comes from Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, this is your word. Please bless the preaching of it. I pray with such a stern warning that you gave to these people in Sardis that we would not count ourselves as those who don't need to hear this same warning that we are in a boat with the living God, and it is a wonderful and yet terrifying thing. You who are the God of Hebrews 4, and you see every heart and soul of every creature laying out naked, reading us like a book. I pray, Lord, that for all that you see that is sin, that you would have mercy on us by the, by the work of your cross, by the life you've lived for us, and by the resurrection you have raised yourself in on our behalf, Lord. I pray in your name, amen. Have a seat. So I want you to imagine that there's a king, and you're in his kingdom, and he's got a bride that he adores. He's got a bride that he loves. She's beautiful, and he does everything he can to make her beautiful. He dresses her in the cleanest, purest clothes, and he loves her. She's his representative beauty before the whole kingdom, and every way that he raises her up, his glory is magnified. Now, he's going to depart on, the, on a long journey and he charges you, he charges you as a steward in his kingdom. He comes to you and says, I want you to take care of my wife. I want you to take care of my bride. You're to care for her. This is a great privilege. And with that great privilege, with that great res- comes a great responsibility. He carefully explains your responsibilities and his expectations on how you're to love and care for and serve and honor his wife. And he leaves, and after some time, what happens? The people in the kingdom start to drift. They become more and more disloyal to the king. They forget his glory. 
They're not so interested in the king or his message or the way that he rules. And they're not interested in or attracted to his bride anymore either. She's not as modern. She's not as cool as they'd like for her to be. She reminds them of the king. But he's been away so long, and they're beginning to spy other kingdoms and other kings around them, thinking that they're far cooler, far more modern, far more sophisticated. They're on the right side of history. They're not so backwards. So you get the idea. Maybe someone gets in your ear. Maybe you get some good advice. And you strip the the king's bride of her clean clothes. And you try to stop getting her. You try to get her to stop talking about the greatness and the purity and the holiness and the greatness and the wonder of the king, all of his grace and benefits, because people are kind of tired of that message. So you put her in cooler clothing. And you get her to talk more about practical, modern stuff. You dress her in the more sophisticated modern times, and you get her to be more inspirational and more interesting and hipper. Now, after some time, you realize, you sober up in your judgment, and you realize you've dressed the king's bride like a prostitute, and you've been parading her in front of carnal men in the hopes that they might become attracted back into the loyalty of the king by the way you presented his bride. What will the king do when he returns and see what you've, sees what you've done with his bride? What will the king say to you? He'll say what he says to the church in Sardis. That's what he'll say. A few weeks ago, I preached on the letter to the church in Pergamum. There's an outside threat of heresy that they're being, they're being tolerant of. Last week, I preached on Thyatira, the letter to that church. There's an inward threat. There's an inside threat of sin that's being tolerated. And the church in Sardis, clearly, this church has collapsed into full-out acceptance of heresy and sin. There's no difference between this church and the world around it. It's like they had never read. It's like they had never heard of the way that Jesus had prayed for his people in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was arrested. You can read part of his prayer in John chapter 17, and you'll see it on the screens. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I, I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, purify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The church in Sardis had been planted in the world, meant to be a testifying people to the world around them of Jesus and his word, his gospel. The gospel, in short, that God put on human flesh and lived on behalf of sinners and died on behalf of sinners and resurrected on behalf of sinners so that we might be sinners in God's kingdom no more but be accepted and adopted and beloved and approved of children of God. The gospel, this is the best news in the world. But over time, apparently, they were no longer merely in the world but over time the church in Sardis became of the world. In short, the church in Sardis became worldly. It became worldly. 
Jesus says in verse 3 to the angel, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In chapter 1, Jesus identifies who he, he himself is. At the end of chapter 1, you get this description of Jesus in glorious arraignment, the, the robe of a judge, a sash of honor. He's got a sword. He's got metal feet ready to stomp on and tread his enemies. And here, Jesus does not return to the end of chapter 1, this glorious picture of himself. He returns back to the first identity he gave himself, the first demonstration of his glory is as one shining like the son of man, son of God, and he's walking among seven lampstands, which are seven churches. We get these seven stars that he's holding in his right hand. Those are, those are the spirits of those churches. And it says that Jesus, he has the seven spirits of God. God doesn't have seven spirits. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The seven spirits is metaphorical language. The seven spirits is the fullness of spirit of God, the Holy Spirit himself. Seven is kind of a, a favorite, kind of na- number that God uses shorthand in the Bible, meaning completion and perfection. So Jesus has the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. He holds the seven stars, the churches, one of whom is the church that he's addressing in this letter. And that's exactly what's missing in the church in Sardis. That's exactly what's missing in the church in in Sardis, it, Jesus starts every letter with who he is and what aspect of that church, uh, what aspect of himself that that church needs. And so this church is not spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-obedient, spirit-loving. And this church is a church in which Jesus apparently is not the lead pastor. It's like the king has gone away and they've forgotten him. And they've dressed his bride up in clothes that the world around them likes better. Now it seems the master's coming back home after some time, and he sent a letter ahead. And in this place, it appears the servants haven't been faithful to him while he was away. He says, I know your works. He says this to some other churches, too. He goes, hey, I know your works. I've seen you. He says that to some of these other churches and going, hey, I I see. I know. I get it. I, I know. I'm keeping watch. I understand. In this case, that's not the same tonality. This is more like when... Your mom gets home, your dad gets home, and they go, I know what you did. And you're like, do they mean this in a good way or a bad way? What do I fess up to? Or do I just keep my mouth shut? I know what you did. I saw you. I saw you give that money to that homeless person. Oh, they didn't see this other thing I did. Jesus is saying, I, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Jesus zeroes in on something. He starts in with their reputation. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but I know your works. I know your heart. I know the work of your mind and your soul and your heart. And sure, I see the work that your church does with its hands. But I know the inner working of who you really are. To the world around them, the church in Sardis seemed like a great church. It was alive. They probably had a very cool pastor with uh, wealthy members and and good-looking members even too, right? Like, you know, you guys. They, they, They probably had pleasant meeting places. It was possibly a large and growing church. It seems clear that the city they were in really liked them. I'll get to how I suss that out in a couple seconds. In fact, right this second. That's a big deal, right? 
that should be glaring for us what's wrong in this letter with this church. It should be glaring. What have we seen for the previous churches, for the past four churches? What have we seen the situation they're in? We see here in the end times, which Jesus prophecies over and over again will happen to his churches, his people, his bride. What does Jesus keep saying is going to happen? I'll tell you. Let me remind you. John chapter 15. Again, see it on the screens. John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know my father. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me... Also hates God, hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Their guilt is greater now that I've shown up. Now that they've heard my word. Now that they've seen my works, my miracles. Now that, they, now that they've been exposed to the king of the universe in the flesh. Their guilt is greater. You know how that works, right? It's one thing to do wrong in ignorance, but it's another entirely different thing to do wrong when you are not ignorant, when you know better. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira, they were all experiencing and suffering great tribulation. They were hated by the world around them. They were being persecuted because they were holding fast to their love and their allegiance and their faith and obedience to Jesus. Whether they were doing awesome at it or struggling with it, in the very least, they wouldn't give the pinch of incense to Caesar. They wouldn't eat at the table of other gods. They wouldn't say they loved and served Caesar and Jesus too. And they suffered because of that. And Sardis appears to thrive. They look alive. They look like they're in great shape. Jesus does not identify any level of suffering or persecution. He doesn't say, hey, I know what you're enduring. I see the patience you're having to exert. I see the faith that you're struggling under, but you're still struggling under faith. No, he says, they look alive, but they're actually dead. Possibly other churches around them wondered, what, what was wrong with them? Maybe some of the other churches that are getting letters until this point were probably going, what's wrong with us? How, they're thriving, they're growing, they aren't suffering. The city seems to be accepting them. Are we doing this wrong? <laughs> Isn't the gospel to be so beautiful and so full of light, so full of power, grace and mercy and hope, so powerful that lost people should be flocking to us and getting saved like crazy? Like it, it, 
at least from a few miles away, looks like it's happening in Sardis. The city isn't persecuting them. The governor isn't writing to Rome asking what he should be doing about these troublesome, meddlesome Christians. It's because the church in Sardis had learned to get along. They'd figured it out. In their, their eyes, they had learned and figured out how to do church, how to be Christians in a way that the world thought they were all right. They were cool. You guys, you, they, got, they were possibly getting the same compliments that I've received and I, I'm a little cautious and wary about from lost friends of God. You know, I, I visit, hey man, you, your church is all right. None of that thun, like thundering fire and brimstone. Y'all aren't always on about sin and how mad God is. And you, you know, you're a cool pastor. I've seen, I've seen you drink a beer and you have a tattoo, right? And you, you see R-rated movies that aren't about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You're, you guys are the cool ones. And I'm always a little worried and cautious about that compliment. I'm a little concerned. This church had learned to get along. Jesus says to wake up and repent. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. And it's not like they know that they're sick. It's not like this church is in a cancer ward and everyone knows, they know that they themselves are suffering and sick and about to die. No, this is the person who looks healthy as an ox, healthy as a horse, and they're, and they're running great. They just don't know that they have a heart defect. And in the next moment, they're about to drop over dead. They look healthy. Another analogy, because my name is Matt and I like to over-analogize. They're like, they're like a tree that looks healthy, but once a strong wind blows, you find out the tree is rotted inside, and that's why it fell over so easy. The strong wind has yet to arrive. What seems to be alive is their outward beauty and their outward prestige. What's dying is the inner beauty and the truth of the gospel that they clearly have forgotten. The glory of the king and not the glory of buildings and programs the grace and purity of the Bible and God's word, and not their own message. The wonderful, serious, and powerful truth that there is no other king but Jesus, that he alone is the son of God, that his kingdom is embodied in his bride, that his word is the authority over all creation, that Satan, sin, demons, and all of their effects are defeated by his life, his death, and his resurrection, and that his people are sinners redeemed and forgiven and glorified by his grace, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father God in heaven but through him. See, the, the problem and, and the challenge that American Christians face today isn't new to American culture. It, it's 2,000 years old. They'd left off from that word, from that gospel, from the Spirit of God, and they were making a name for themselves. They were dressing the bride, the queen, up. In new clothes because she needs to look, she need a little bit of zhuzhing up. They needed to attract these Romans, these Jews, these pagans, these Gentiles, 
And what Jesus had left them with in his bride, with his word and his Holy Spirit, just wasn't quite working for them. It was really painful. It was really tough. It was slow going. And there's got to be an expressway to success somewhere in here. There's got to be some, some best practices we can learn. They'd made a name for themselves, this reputation of theirs, for being alive, for being great. Important in the community, glorifying themselves. The, the Christians in the church in Sardis had become the people of Matthew chapter 7. Saying, Lord, Lord, we prophesy in your name, we cast out demons in your name, we're healing in your name. To which Jesus says, get away from me. You did that stuff in my name, but not for my name. You did it for your name. You don't love me, you use me. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, and he says to you and me this morning, he says this to this church, and he says it to all churches. Wake up. A name apart from Jesus is no name at all. That's the main point of today's sermon. Wake up. A name apart from Jesus is no name at all. Said differently, a life apart from Jesus is no life at all. Pleasures apart from Jesus are no pleasures at all. Security apart from Jesus is no security at all. Approval apart from Jesus is no approval at all. Friendship, physical pleasures, health, happiness, laughter, celebration, parties, money. Apart from Jesus, it's nothing at all. It's no thing at all. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget. Strengthen the gospel belief and love in your heart and mind. Get yourself and pray for yourself. Position yourself in such a way that the name of Jesus is lifted up and important to you. Vital and central and amazing. I, I read a book and I've reread it several times and I always go back to the same spot. It's by a guy named Paul David Tripp. It's called dangerous calling and it's written to pastors and I, I highlighted underlined circled it this this woe this warning that that, that Paul Tripp gives he says woe and and caution to us pastors who spend so much time in the word of God and preaching and teaching and doing God's work that we become familiar with him that that we're not we're not in awe we're not amazed we don't get enraptured we don't get excited Woe to pastors, woe to Christians when we get there. Lift up his name and make a big deal out of him with everything you do. With your days, your dollars, and your devotion. The world will say that you look wonderful if you'll just look and sound and act like them. Why don't you fit in a little bit? You don't want to be Ned Flanders. The next door neighbor and the symptom, symptoms, right? You don't want to be Ned Flanders with the, with the goofy hat and the, and, and the fanny pack. You, you don't want to be the backwards, old-fashioned Christian, the kind that I used to, like, really make fun of and, and kind of pity. People like my godly mom who likes stuff from the 80s. She's got a Bible koozie and likes Thomas Kincaid paintings and 
listens to Sandy Patty. Like, some of you are like, who's that? Look her up. She's great. But I used to make fun of that. It's backwards. That's not going to get anybody in a church. That's not going to lure any. It's not going to attract any of my cool younger friends. And it's not so much those accoutrements, those, those, those add-ons that Christians like my beloved mom make, makes them godly. It's the centerpiece of what Christians believe, which is a gospel that's unadulterated. It's not cool. And it doesn't need any zhuzhing up. It doesn't need any help. It doesn't need better marketing. I like marketing. We have a lady in our church, a deacon, Maya Wall, who's in charge of our marketing. I think we've got a nice-looking website. We don't want our building to look like dump. Okay, yeah. But the gospel of Jesus, the name of Jesus, doesn't need any help. And if we find ourselves in that place, then what we're really realizing and revealing about ourselves is that our name needs some help. Our appearance in front of our coworkers, our reputation in front of our family and our friends, in front of the culture and on social media, it's our reputation that really wants some help to be approved of, to be accepted. The world says you'll look wonderful if you look and sound and act like them, but that's death, Jesus says. Romans chapter 8 says, the mind that is set on the Holy Spirit, the mind that is set on the, on the Spirit is life and peace. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You'll, you'll be a dead person. And the world may say that your walk looks like a dance because you do some church stuff, but you're not uptight like those Christians. You, you don't really believe in hell. You don't really believe in heaven. You're not all, all on God all the time talking about Jesus. You don't, you don't like pray in front of people. You, you, you just keep your religion to yourself, and we really appreciate that. You keep it out of our faces. Jesus says, if you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you won't know at what hour I will come against you. If you don't repent... If you keep loving your name and, having the, and, and, and earnestly seeking and needing the world to like you and love you and approve of you and accept you, Jesus says, I will show up. And if you don't like what I say now, you will hate what I'll do. The judgment that Jesus has over the world, the judgment and wrath and condemnation we'll see the Lord bring to this world over the next 16 chapters will be for you. It'll be for you. All that's coming, that will land on you as well. If you do not repent. Verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. A few who, according to my view, have a reputation. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments a few still love me, a few still love my bride, a few still cling to my people, my word, they, a few still listen to and obey my Holy Spirit, a few still won't change from the white robes of grace that I've given them, a few, they're still getting up, walking in Colossians 3, every day getting up and they're taking off the old man and they're putting on the new man, every day they wake up finding that their old sin nature has crept back up onto them, soiled garments and they go, these are not the clothes I have, I have white garments that I don't deserve, 
except the Lord has given them to me. I'll put those on. I'm going to put off the old man, and I'll put on the new man. How are these people worthy, these few that are in this church? Are they better people? Are they more moral people? Are they smarter than all these other losers, these wicked folks with soiled garments, these dead people? Are they better in their nature? No, of course not. For the Christian, we have to accept this truth and not shy away from it. There are atheists, there are pagans, there are Muslims, there are Jews, there are, there are people who are not Christian who often, so often, show themselves to be in some way more moral, more upright, more consistent, smarter than me and you. See, the truth of the gospel that makes us Christians isn't that we're better It's not that, oh, we're Christians because we don't do those things and we do do those things. Therefore, God likes us and sees that we are better than them, more worthy. He calls us worthy. We're worthy to wear white garments. No. They're worthy in the same way that anyone else under the gospel of Jesus Christ can be worthy. Here's how they're worthy. They're worthy because they plead the sinless life of Jesus on their behalf. Because they're... They're sinners, and they know it. They're worthy because they plead the propitiating death of Jesus on their behalf, because they know they deserve death at the hand of God. They're worthy because they plead the glorious resurrection of Jesus on their behalf, because they know apart from him, they deserve hell, eternal death. They're worthy because they're willing to hate their own name in comparison to their love of his name. They'll let their own reputation and approval before the world die in a ditch covered in insults and spit from the world. Just as long as they might live forever under the reputation and approval that they have with Jesus at the throne of Almighty God. They don't care about their name. and They don't care about their reputation. And while the disapproval (laughs) and the persecution of the world around you because you're a Christian, if you love God, if they, if, you love, if they hated Jesus, they'll hate you if you belong to him. If you can die, then you can, in some ways you, you, you might be able to imitate the Apostle Paul as he imitates Jesus. Why did... Why? We're, on, we're about to enter into Christmas time now. We've got trees up. Thank you to Sarah and Nancy, members of our church who came and decorated, and anyone else who helped them. Thank you. Do you know what the purpose of Christmas is? It's to bring Jesus, the baby, into the world. And he was on a mission, and what did he come to do? He came to die. And Beth, he was born in what city? Pueblecito de Belén. Town of Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem's main, main like industry was? It's a small town. Do you know what? Do you know what that little village was all about? Do you know what they? Everyone in that town basically supported what industry? They raised sheep that were then supposed to be sent to the temple in Jerusalem to be sacrificed, and that's where Jesus was born. He came for one primary, main, ultimate goal, which was to die. Jesus was a dead man walking, and no one ever lived a more lively life than him. 
And Paul, you couldn't touch Paul. Do you know why? Because he died. Well, I know, like the Rome history says they cut his... No, he died when Jesus met him on the road. He died. He's a dead man walking. You couldn't touch him. Hey, Paul, you better stop preaching Jesus. Stop talking about him. Stop writing books of the Bible or we'll kill you. Oh, well, then I'll be... I'll depart and go and be with Jesus, and that's my gain. That's awesome. Oh, you're not scared of death, huh? Fine. Uh, hey, we'll throw you in jail. Cool. I'll convert your guards. I'll write books of the Bible in jail. Now, I'm not saying he was like some Superman fearless guy who didn't have any fears or problems, but to even get close to that sort of courage and that sort of faithfulness, he's got to be a dead person. It's that, it's that superhero weakness, right? That's why superheroes always have to have some alter ego, right? Even Superman has to have an alter ego because even though, spoiler alert, he's Clark Kent, he always, he always tries to try to hide his identity. Why? You can't hurt Superman, right? You can't, you, you can't shoot him. Oh, okay, maybe kryptonite. Good luck getting your hands on that unless you're multi-trillionaire Lex Luthor. You can't touch him. But you know what you can do with Superman? You can touch his loved ones. You can get at Lois Lane. You can get at his friends and his family. And then you can get to him. You can hurt him. The only person you can't hurt is a person who says, I'm dead to the world. I'm dead to my name and reputation. I will weep and cry if you hurt me. I'll bleed if you hurt me. I will be angry and upset. I'll be heartbroken. I'll be, I'll be devastated if you get at my wife or my kids or my husband or my mom or my dad, my friends, my living, my freedom, my liberties. All that stuff will be terrible. But you can't actually get me off my mission that the Lord has given to me, which is to live as an ambassador of his kingdom. Well, because I'm already dead. That which is dead cannot die. Jesus says, I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Listen, no name in the, book of the lamb, uh, in the book of the life of the lamb who was slain will ever be blotted out. I, we play with our cards face up, and I try not to make this the flag that we wave. But I want to be plain. I, I, I preach, I believe, and therefore I preach, and I see it in the, in the scriptures. I preach a predestinatory salvation. That if you are saved... If you are a Christian who doesn't believe in predestinary, that the Lord has elected you and before the foundations of the world knew and loved you and said, that's, that's mine. If you don't believe that, but you still go, once saved, always saved, I don't know how you base that second one. Well, I, don't, I don't know what you base that one off of. The only way once saved, always saved works is if you were always saved before you ever knew it because your name is in the book. The promise isn't that there will be names that could be erased from the book of life. The promise is that if your name is in the book, it will, it's, it's not going to be blotted out. It's written there forever. That, okay, cool. That, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's Reformed theology. That's Calvinism talking. Okay, cool. Revelation chapter 13, chapter, verse 8 says that your name, if you really are a Christian, has been there in God's book since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Go look it up. Revelation 13, 8. The names that are written 
in the book of the life of the Lamb who were slain and have been written there since before the foundations of the world were laid. The promise is that if your name is in there, it's in there. Indelible, unerasable ink. Satan can't sneak in with naughty pictures on the internet that you've seen. He can't sneak in with that Metallica CD you're still listening to. He can't sneak in with those lies you've been telling. He can't sneak in with any of your perversion or your gossip or your unsubmissiveness or your prayer. Satan can't sneak in with an eraser and get you out of there. Your name is written. If you're a Christian, if you have indeed died and been raised again with Jesus, and the promise is that Jesus will name you before his father and his angels, that ought, that ought to be impressive to us. I'm a pastor, and if maybe not, all, I, I can't even imagine that I'm like all other pastors. But most pastors I know have some level of ambition. And I mean, at their best, godly ambition. We have godly ambition. Who doesn't want to do great things for the Lord in the name of the Lord for the name of the Lord? Who doesn't? If you want to do something with your life, obey Jesus. And like, if you're going, oh, I don't really want to see the Lord use my life at all. I'm not really interested in anything spectacular happening with the life God has given to me. I'll just be a Christian quietly and privately. Become a Christian and get saved. You need to become a Christian and get saved. Some godly ambition. And not for a name for yourself, but to see the name of Jesus made much of. And see, it's, it's no sin to want your name to mean something. It's not a sin to want glory. That's written into the spiritual human DNA by God is to be glorious and wonderful, beautiful, handsome, strong, powerful, never-ending. That's not a sin, ladies, to want to be pretty. Men, it's not a sin to want to have six-pack abs and look pretty awesome with your, with your shirt off. That's not a sinful desire. It's not a sinful desire to want to do and be part of something great. It's a sin as to what you want to do with that, why you want it. Where your, where your name is going to be planted on. What it's going to be umbrellaed over by. It's not a sin to be thirsty. But it's terrible to drink from the toilet. To have the ambition that for all the approval and all the satisfaction and all the acceptance of people in this world who might look at you and go, hey, you're one of those cool Christians. You're one of those nice Christians. You're one of those great Christians. You're not so religious. You're not so, you're not in, you just keep it out of our faces. And you do some sin stuff. Like, I mean, I like your shirt, you know. I'm a Christian, but I like to cuss a little. You're cool. You're just worldly enough that we don't have to hate you. If you can die to that, if you can if you're in the place where you can go, you know, I, I won't just not have that approval, but I'll be disapproved of. Not because I want to be a religious jerk. Not, just, not because I want to be a theological nut job who's constantly correcting and Jesus duking people. Not because I, but because I, I just want to love Jesus and I want to show him to people. I want to talk about him. I want, 
because he brings eternal life and, and, and we're all dead apart from him. And to let you get into hell without stepping over my dead body as I try to get in your way and you practically have to shoot me in order to get in there. I love you and I don't want that to happen to you. If you'll suffer that, then the very thing that you rightly want, glory and approval and a good name, that's what you get. And it's a name that Jesus gives you and not that you have made for yourself. It's a name the world can't give you because a name apart from Jesus is no name at all. Approval apart from Jesus is not really approval. Love that the world can give you for being like them is not love. The so-called Christians in Sardis so badly wanted the world to like them. They traded in the adoption they were offered by the Father in heaven for the adoption that the Father of this earth offered. They chose to be accepted and cool, sophisticated, approved of disciples of the culture and the society around them rather than the approval and glory and honor that God gives before himself. When the roll call is proclaimed, and here's my people, Father, this is who you sent me to die for, and I present them, my bride, before you here at the wedding feast of the Lamb and at the book of Revelation, you want your name on the list. And he says your name in front of the Father. And he says your name in front of his endless legions of angels. And he says it in front of the endless, numerous, innumerable citizens of the kingdom. In front of Abraham and Moses. In front of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and David. He says it in front of Peter and Andrew, James and John, Bartholomew. Matthew, Judas, not Iscariot, the Apostle Paul, the deacon, Stephen. He says it in front of everybody. And they're going to rightly go, yeah, you, you, get in here. Yeah. Wow. I can't wait to talk to you. I, I want to hear about your life and what you suffered and the spectacular things the Lord did with your life. And that's... That's Paul talking to you when you meet him. Because he clearly thinks there's something happening here, and he clearly wants to talk to you. Why? Because Jesus just read your name in front of everybody, and we, we lost our minds. That should motivate you. Not a name here on this earth, a name up in heaven. A treasure that you can't get here on earth, a treasure that is in heaven where neither Rust, nor moth, nor thieves can lay hold of it. Real honor, a real name, real significance, the acceptance and the love and the approval that you've always wanted and so often have been drinking out of toilets to try to get. So I want you to look at your life, church. I want, I want you to look at your life. I want us to look at our life as a church together. I want us here and you at home, I want us 
to look at our lives because Jesus is. He doesn't just see what's outward. He's not like a man. He's not like a woman. He judges in a different way. There's There's a way that seems right to men and then there's God's way. Jesus knows our works. Our works. He knows whether we're spiritually alive or dead. He can see whether we love his name or we love our own. And he's warning us what will happen if we want to make a name for ourselves or if we want to make much of his name. There's no need to help or dress up the message of the gospel. There's no need There is no need to stutter or stammer or find a cooler, more sophisticated way to say the name and message of Jesus. Just say Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a sinner just like you. And God sent his son into the world to love me and forgive me of everything and anything And he loves me. And I can talk to him. He he talks to me. We call it prayer. He he wrote me a book. And it's true. And he keeps loving me. And he chose me before I could ever choose him. And he'll, even on the days where I'm not choosing him, he keeps choosing me. And he loves me. And I'm just like you. I'll die someday. A real death. But he's promised that. If I, if I die here the way he died, for the reason he died, then I, even, though I, even though I die, I, I will yet live. I won't, even have enough, I won't even have enough time to taste it. He says, you won't even taste death. The cup gets passed in front of you, and you don't even get to take a, take a sip. I, I believe that, and you're, you're my lost friend. You're, I'm not better than you. You need to meet my friend Jesus. You need to meet the king. You need to... I care about your soul. There's something after this, more than this, more important than this. I just really needed to tell you that. And I wanted to talk to you about it. Do you have questions? I'll take as much time as it takes. I'm your friend. I love you. And I'll still be your friend if you say no. Hell no. If you make fun of me, I, I'll still love you. I'll still be your friend. If you make fun of me, it'll, I'm, not, I'm not lying, it'll hurt my feelings, but I'm still your friend and I love you. And as much as you'll let me, I'll just tell you this stuff. And I'm praying for you. It's my, my best on-the-fly role play of just speaking plainly. It doesn't need any help. The king of the universe doesn't need any help. And if we believe we do, it's because we believe we need help, because we need to be approved of and liked. No need to dress yourself for the bride in more alluring clothing to attract the attention and play to the base sinful desires of the lost world. Wake up. A name apart from Jesus is no name at all. A name and reputation found in and with Jesus in his book That's worth something. But a name apart from him isn't found in his book at all. It's no name at all. 
Let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to his churches. It's a somber message. Serious message. It ought to lay on us that seriously. If you know me personally, you know I love good jokes. I love good laughter. I love a good time. I like to inspire and motivate and encourage. Today, I encourage us, as I've been encouraged the last week and a half studying and getting into this, just go, I, I want to encourage us to find that Jesus preserves for himself, even in this church, a remnant. 